Well, hey there, Todd. Uh, you know, our last episode was was great. Uh, loved hearing the story about New England Institute and how you were accepted there and not accepted in other places and the dean's list and you know your dad thinking that it was like a an expulsion letter. You do a great job of just highlighting the people who have had influences on you. So I think uh, I think that's what we're going to do today. So I'll let you take it away. Okay. Well, thank you, Rob. Um... This is kind of a addendum to the last uh, sub segment we did on on my uh, time being a student at the New England Institute in Boston. I uh, had mentioned that I got a job at a funeral home in Winthrop, Massachusetts called uh, Caggiano Funeral Home. Now, I lived there and uh, I had room and board. I would have uh, uh, breakfast and I would have uh, a supper with the family. Uh, the, the father of the man who was actually the guy that hired me, he and his uh, wife lived in this little house, which was right next to the funeral home. Uh, they lived on the first floor, and then upstairs there was a room, just one room for us, uh, two, two students from the mortuary school usually were out there to help run the ambulance at night. Um, and uh, so I had mentioned in another episode, though, there were five funeral homes in Winthrop. So O'Malley's was way off the beaten path over on Atlantic Avenue in Winthrop, not not five blocks from the ocean. But the rest of the funeral homes were on the same street. They were on Winthrop Avenue. And there was Morris Kirby's place. Then there was Reynolds Funeral Home. Joe Collins owned that. He only did maybe six funerals a year out of that building. He was a trade embalmer. Uh, in the metro area of Boston. But then next to next to him was Al Marsh's place. And what's interesting is I lived across the street from Al. Al's funeral home, the building was an old mansion, old home. It used to be the Winthrop Hospital. It was it had been a hospital in the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties. And then uh, it was transformed into a funeral home. It was called the Benison Funeral Home. And Al was from Manchester, New Hampshire. And he came down to Winthrop and bought the Benison Funeral Home. Um, and it, even though I worked across the street, my connection as far as mentorship and and friendship and respect and guidance came from Al Marsh across the street. And the reason that this happened was that Al had developed formaldehyde poisoning uh, years before from embalming bodies without wearing a glove, All right? Al was that old embalmer and he just wouldn't wear a glove when he embalmed a body. Right now, today, your listeners are just rolling their eyeballs of how reckless and how risky was that. But but I can say this uh, not to endorse it in any way, 
but some of the old timers, a lot of them didn't wear gloves, is it, right? It just was the way it was. Um, so Al was this charming human being. Uh, he was probably at that time 65. So one thing about Al and his, the funeral home was in the center of this uh, block. There was no parking. He had no parking whatsoever. He didn't even have a parking lot. Um, so it was all on street parking. He didn't own a hearse. He didn't own a limousine. He had not one casket in his building. Um, and and we did, I did a lot of his embalming because he had made an arrangement with the funeral home that was actually paying me across the street to do his embalming for him. Um, and I just found, I just found my time with Al to be this, this, this great experience of a young man working with somebody who basically I would watch him in action. And I would think that's how I want to be when I grow up. Al, uh, was a member of, he was big in the Masonic Lodge. He was uh, a Methodist church uh, there in Winthrop at the little square. And then he was uh, an active Rotarian. But, but Al, in a year's time, Al would rival. In fact, he would do more funerals than Reynolds or O'Malley's. Uh, he would rival Al uh, at Maury Kirby's place and the place I worked at as far as volume went. And these other funeral homes had parking, uh, they had uh, hearses, they had ambulance, uh, uh, limousines, they had uh, audiovisual systems. They, they, they had all this equipment. Al had none of that. And, and so there was always a lesson there I think I learned from him was his ability to connect with human beings. Um, he would walk downtown uh, and go around the square, uh, stop in and say to, hello to people. But then he'd run into a homeless person downtown. And I remember I would watch him. He'd just look at me and say, give me a minute. He'd go over and I know, I know he slipped the homeless person $5, et cetera. And Al, uh, and also Al, as some of your listeners will uh, be familiar, at the Boston Symphony orchestra there is this choral group called the Handel and Haydn Society and this is the Harvard of choral groups in the Boston area and Al Marsh had a marvelous singing voice and he was a member of the Handel and Haydn Society and I'll tell you a quick story about this I would work a funeral with Al and oh my goodness sakes he was a vision on a funeral he had snow white hair. He parted it right down the middle. He wore a, a morning suit with the gray striped pants and the vest and the gray striped tie. He wore gray gloves on a funeral. And uh, he didn't have any name tag. Uh, during the winters, he'd wear a Homburg hat and he'd wear a big, great, big black Prince Edward coat with a white scarf. Uh, he was just a vision on a funeral. And so I remember working services with him and these little old ladies would come into the church uh, 
And let's say the organist was up front playing a funeral hymn, playing the old rugged cross or uh, rock of ages, or all that. Al would come over to these old ladies and he would extend his arm and as he would, and he'd escort, may I, may I take you to your seat, Mrs. So-and-so. He knew everybody. And, oh, yes, Mr. Marsh. And everybody called him Mr. Marsh, right? Yes, Mr. Marsh. And as he'd walk him down the church aisle, he'd sing, he'd be singing the hymn to these women that the organist was playing. He'd be singing to these women. And I remember the first time I saw him do it, I thought, this guy's got dementia, right? This, this, guy's, this guy's losing his marbles, right? But I learned a lesson of humility because I would go over to these little old ladies and extend my arm, and they'd look at me and they'd go, we'll wait for Mr. Marsh, young man. I mean, they'd stand in the back of the church waiting for Al to come back so that they could be serenaded by him. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And also, he was very appreciative. Um, and I want to share this with your listeners. I worked for people that, in my career, that hadn't embalmed a body in some, some people I've worked with, I thought, had never embalmed a body, ever. Right, they were licensed embalmers, but they had never actually embalmed a body. Um, and I would embalm for them. The family would come in, and they'd go over, and they would say, "Oh, mother looks so wonderful. Uh, she was a physical wreck last night. Oh my goodness, we're so happy." And the person that I knew had not embalmed that body would look at that family and say, well, thank you so much. I, I know how special mother was to you. And I took just that little more effort when I did the embalming because I wanted everything to be perfect for you. They would take total credit for that, all right? But then when a family would walk in and say, oh my God, what did you do to mother, all right? Um, they would, uh, they would they, they'd go, Van Beck? Get, get in here, right? They'd come out and get me. So the family would chew my rump out. Then the boss would chew my rump out. But boy, if everything was going well, uh, I was, you know, I was like this untouchable behind a curtain, right? Uh, invisible. Al was not like that. Al, I remember we had a case. This, this woman, she was probably in her 60s. I don't know what happened with the chemotherapy, but something went wrong and she was covered with lesions, cancerous lesions on her face. And I remember it was the first big restorative art thing that I'd ever done in my career. I mean, a significant one. And I was still in school, right, when all this happened. And we asked, you know, we asked permission to do nothing back then. Right. There was no embalming permission. There was no reconstruction, cosmetic uh, uh, permission. But I went ahead and I remember I excised all those lesions. I took them out and then I dried it out or dry it out with drying. And then I started to build it up with gauze and pore closure from Dodge. 
and I'd build it up, build it up, build it up, and then I'd put wound filler in there, and then I'd cover it over. And I have to tell you, um, you know, there's a lot better embalmers than I am in the world, for sure. But by golly, this one, this worked, and she looked good when I was finished with her. And I remember we took the body over to Al's. Uh, she was in a mahogany casket, I remember, because he was big on hardwoods. And um, by golly, about, um, you know, the next day the phone rings and I get called and and my boss, who was in a grumpy mood, he said, he said you got to go over to Al Marsh's place, which meant something was wrong, right? Usually when you do a, a job like that, an embalming and the funeral home would call you back. There was a problem. And I, so I went over there. I was scared to death. I remember walking into the funeral home and Al standing there. And uh, he says, come with me, come with me. He's very stern. See, and that was out of Al's character. Right. And um, I walked in there. The family is standing by the casket and Al comes over and he looks at that family and he goes, this is Mr. Van Beck. This is the young man that prepared your mother's body. And I thought, here it comes. And this family, they started to cry. They walked over. They grabbed my hand. Mother looks beautiful. What, oh, what a talent. Well, how can we thank you for this? We were so worried about what mother was going to look like. Oh, my God, we owe you so much. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, and I looked and I, 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 and I, I was overwhelmed and I looked over at Al and he just winked at me, right? Cause he knew damn good and well, I thought I was really in trouble when I was going over there. He played that like a fiddle. And I remember standing there thinking, this is why I became a funeral director in the first place, that, that moment. And so Al was a, Al was a stellar gentleman when it came to that kind of stuff. And he was this charming, and he had a lovely wife. Florence was his wife. Um, and it was just a joy uh, to work with Al. I have fond memories of him. As a matter of fact, in my office here, I've got a big portrait of him. And I got, I got one of the hearse nameplates from his old hearse. Uh, that I restored and I got it uh, uh, screwed into one of the uh, side walls here in my office in honor of Al. He was a good guy. And then, unfortunately, and, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another one. He, he knew I wasn't happy. Um, and, uh, and so he came to me one day because he had done, Al had done his apprenticeship at, at a place called Goodwins in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, Al was a New Hampshire boy. And, um, and he had done his apprenticeship uh, with a man named Elmer Goodwin back in the 30s. And now David Goodwin uh, owned a place. I think David has since passed away. But the Goodwins was a gorgeous mansion. Uh, gorgeous building in Manchester. And Al, I remember Al, I mean, can you believe this, Rob, the kindness of human beings? Al got his car out. I didn't have a car. 
he, he, he drove an old Plymouth Fury 3. Right. I mean, the other funeral directors are running around town in Lincoln Continentals and Cadillacs. And Al's got a damn old 1960 Plymouth Fury 3. And I'm not kidding you. He drove me from Boston up to Manchester, New Hampshire, to have an interview with David Goodwin at Goodwin's and bought me lunch and drove me back to uh, Winthrop. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, the kindness that people will show each other. And then unfortunately, and for, well, and he had a summer home up at, uh, in Hampton, New Hampshire on the beach there, uh, not on the beach except is almost like a double wide trailer they had up there, but it was a charming, charming place. They loved New Hampshire. But I remember when he was 60, the year I hadn't been out of mortuary school a year. And he and, and and Mrs. Marsh went to Florida for the winter, and she heard him collapse in the bathroom down there. And um, she walked in, and she knew he was dead. Uh, he was in the corner of the bathroom. And interestingly, this is crazy, isn't it, that this would happen? They shipped his body to Spokane, Washington, and they shipped the wrong body back to Boston these incompetent shipping agents down in Florida. They had so they shipped Al to Seattle, Washington. So Al was not at his own wake, right? His body was getting to Boston and, um, but he had a huge funeral uh, and he's buried there at the Winthrop Cemetery. Uh, very, very fine human being. Good, excellent funeral director, as good as they come. Oh. What a what a neat story, Todd. And uh, nice. Yeah, he was a good guy. Nice good that you guy. can um, carry his memory on, and and then it obviously has passed on. I'm sure his teachings and kindness that he gave to you, you've then passed that on to many funeral professionals coming through. So, well, we what try. A, what a great story. We try. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this one up. What are we going to talk about next time? Well, I think we'll uh, continue with Boston a little bit and talk about uh, Reverend Dr. Edgar N. Jackson. Okay, that sounds great. Looking forward right. to it, Todd, as always. We'll, Thank, we'll talk to you thank soon. Thank you, Rob. Thank you.